from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I am your host, Christopher Calloway, for Creator Talks, the comic book interviews. My guest on this show is Dave Baker. Dave is a writer who lives in Los Angeles and is co-creator of Action Hospital, F-Off Squad, and contributed to one of the stories contained in Star Trek Waypoint, published through IDW. Dave is a big fan of Star Trek and is the writer of the forthcoming miniseries in November, Star Trek Voyager 7's Reckoning, published through IDW as well. This is the first Star Trek Voyager series in nearly 10 years and set within Voyager continuity. Dave's co-collaborator is artist Angel Hernandez, whose credits include Star Trek Picard Countdown and Star Trek Green Lantern. Dave discusses the critical role of his co-collaborators on the titles he writes and his issue with some of the journalists and publishers placing all the emphasis on the writer of a title. We discuss some of Dave's favorite comics, including Jack Kirby's Captain Victory. Discover why, of all Kirby's creations, Jack's later work from the mid-80s to the early 90s are Dave's favorite. Dave also explains his theory why bad movies are so popular, and it's not because people particularly like bad movies. When we get into the miniseries Seven's Reckoning, Dave tells us why Seven of Nine was first introduced into the Voyager television series and what her place is in the comic book miniseries and the new alien race Dave has created for it. When I kick back with the creator, Dave reveals which Star Trek movie was his favorite growing up and why it wasn't The Wrath of Khan. What was it about his pick that had him so obsessed with it? Dave has a lot of energy, so please fasten your safety belts. If you're among others, put on your face mask and put on your earbuds because there is some explicit language. Ready for takeoff? Then please welcome my guest, Dave Baker, here now on Creator Talks. Dave, welcome to Creator Talks. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's start at the beginning. Your earliest works included Action Hospital and F-Off Squad. I'm paraphrasing there. (laughs) These are very different from Star Trek. Tell me about these stories and why you wanted to tell them. Yeah, Action Hospital is like a, an ongoing project that I've been doing for probably about the past seven or eight years or so. It started as a webcomic and then transitioned into print. The high concept is that it's kind of like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind meets Men in Black set in a hospital. So you kind of follow a, a wide-ranging cast of multicultural characters as they work in this hospital that services otherworldly beings or people with extreme needs. And the added twist of the book is that each character in the hospital, you know, each nurse, doctor, patient, whatever, is drawn by a different artist, and I write everything. Whenever the characters show up on the different pages, they're always drawn by the same person. So it's kind of this big world-building collaborative effort. I write it all, and then I draw what was intended to be a supporting character, and then over the course of the seven years or whatever we've been making it, she's kind of become the main character, Joan Michelle Basquiat, who is a nurse at the hospital who's kind of a slacker, who has this mutant ability to see the essence of people that manifests as like a Jean-Michel Basquiat painting over their heads because, you know, puns. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so there's three volumes of that book. Like I said, I write it and I co-draw it with a bunch of different people, Robert Negretti, Nicole Gu, and Clay Merle being the three primary people who kind of come in and out. And then Fuck Off Squad, that book really existed because I was transitioning away from being a writer artist and I wanted to just write for other people. I used that webcomic as kind of a way to find collaborators and find like-minded people. And one of the people who I partnered up with on the series, Nicole Gu, who has since gone on to draw Shadow of the Batgirl for DC Comics, 
she and I kind of developed this book. Fuck Off Squad is Nicole and I's coming-of-age romance comic about queer skater kids in Los Angeles. And it's kind of um, a, you know, loosely based on our experiences in L.A., loosely based on people we know, kind of slice-of-life drama about these three uh, would-be slacker types that live in mid-city L.A. and really don't care about anything except for uh, skateboarding and trying to find some sort of minimum wage job that won't fire them immediately. And so both of those books kind of come out of just being around artists and being like, what can we make? Let's do a thing. Yeah. Like Nicole was just drawing these skater kids in her sketchbook. And I was like, we should make a book out of them. And here we are now all these years later. And it's published by Silver Sprocket, available wherever comic books are sold. (laughs) And skateboards. (laughs) And skateboards. Exactly. And skateboards. Didn't you do like a Watchmen type book also? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As evidenced by these three things, I'm interested in a bunch of different things. I have a wide palette when it comes to artistic consumption. I like serious documentaries like the works of Joshua Oppenheimer, like The Look of Silence or The Act of Killing. Uh, And then I like, you know, kind of pulpy adventure stuff, Doc Savage and Johnny Quest. And one (laughs) of the things I'm, I'm really interested in is the medium of comics and how the mechanics of words and pictures interrelate and the art of illustration and how it's inextricable from the art form. And Nicole and I were talking about uh, Watchmen one day because she had recently read it. and She was talking about the compositions that Dave Gibbons employed in Watchmen. And we kind of got talking about how Alan Moore is a genius. We both love his work, but a lot of people don't give Dave Gibbons the credit that he deserves for Watchmen. So she had done these kind of like little studies of the compositional elements of the panels, you know, how the figure in the environment uh, relates to each other, how the foreground elements function. And for people who don't make comics, nine panel grids, the whole thing is in a nine panel grid. And that shit's hard. It's really, really difficult to make interesting compositions work over and over again on a nine panel grid because humans are binocular. So we like compositions that are horizontal and a nine panel grid necessitates compositions being vertical. And so she was making these dumb sketches and she was like, wouldn't it be funny if we like just published a whole book of all these dumb Watchmen drawings? And I was like, oh no, no, we're doing that. We're doing that this weekend. <laughs> and so I got a bunch of our friends together. I got 11 cartoonists together, me, Malachi Ward, Sam Grinberg, Sam Ancona, Rachel Dukes, a bunch of local LA cartoonist stalwarts who've all have amazing inspirational illustration careers in their own right. And I got them all together and I was like, all right, guys, we're going to redraw Watchmen, but really bad. And they were all like, what, really? And I was like, yeah, we're going to do it really bad because what we're going to do is we're going to strip away the narrative functionality of the words that Alan Moore supplies. And we're just going to examine the compositions of Watchmen and see if it still works without the words and without the bespoke cross-hatching of Dave Gibbons' actual final render drawings. And uh, they all were really excited about the idea, mostly because shitty drawings are easy to make and fun to make. We made the book. Yeah, I think it was literally like a weekend. It was a lot of fun. And then we did the same thing again with Dark Knight Returns. We've published this kind of like a diptych of shitty seminal comics. <laughs> I like this. You have no fear. It's like, there's no breaks put on us. Like, yes, let's do it. My mother is a theater director and I kind of got raised in, you know, the performing arts. I'm very just kind of like, come on, let's all put on a show. And uh, sometimes people really love that about me. And sometimes people are just like, I just want to sleep. And I'm like, no, let's let's do a thing. 
you're that guy. They're exhausted, and you're like, you wake up singing in the morning. You're ready to go. Chris, you don't even know, man. I, I literally am that guy. 100%. I'm that asshole in the corner being like, uh, you know, good morning, good morning. It's fine to stay up late. Like, 100%, I'm that guy. <laughs> Oh, I know people like that. I'm not quite one of them. I'm, I'm a little less grumpy than I used to be in the morning. That's about the best I can do. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I recognize in artists that I like and work that inspires me is I can tell when people are having fun and I can tell when people are sad. Like, I love Wally Wood, but Wally Wood's work is made by someone who is extremely depressed. Jack Kirby, that guy's excited. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Those big slashes that he does to symbolize visual shorthand for like, look at the sinew in this bicep. Look at this power in this fist. Obviously, he's working through some stuff because the guy probably had PTSD from World War II. But the actual act of creating for him was something that he was excited about. It was a grind. It was a job. He did it, obviously. And there were times that he didn't want to do it. But you can tell his body likes making those things. That's something I aspire to. My illustration work is very dense and very detail oriented. And, you know, it looks kind of Jeff Darrowy is what people always say, which, mm -hmm. look, I'm not here to fight town hall. Like if you want to just boil it down to, oh, you like Jeff Darrow? Like, okay, yeah, I like a lot of other things too, but sure. Yes, Jeff Darrow. But that being said is like, I don't want to make work that looks like I'm depressed while making it. Are there periods where I've been very depressed while making it? Hell yeah. Who hasn't? Comics is fucking hard, but I want that energy to be communicated to the viewer, and I live my life every day that way, or attempt to. Sure, there's good days and bad days, and there's days where you wake up and you're like, what the fuck is the point of all this? More of those recently, considering mm -hmm. what's going on in the country. But I want to make stuff that makes people excited, because that's the work that I tend to relate to. You mentioned Jack Kirby, and a lot of people, including myself, are fans of his work. Have you read a lot of it? Are you a fan of a... Oh, yeah. What's your favorite one of all the work he's done? <laughs> oh, this is a hard question. But I think for me, my favorite period of Kirby is late period. I love the Pacific era. Oh, I love okay. Captain Victory. I love Devil Dinosaur and Commandy 2. But I feel like those books are actually better than Captain Victory. The reason I like Captain Victory is because it's someone who's lost it. He doesn't quite have the spark anymore. The grease in the engine is running out. He's not exactly in touch with society anymore. You know, there are these kind of clumsy anti-racism messages. Everything kind of doesn't work. It's 85, and yet he's still drawing the same 70s New Gods hairstyles. Mm -hmm. But he's trying. He's like reaching. He's like, no, goddammit, I'm still going to be relevant. That's really what I love about those comics, because you can feel him going after something you can feel that he's not phoning it in even though the work is less in its ability or its nascent quality does that make sense yeah i've never looked at captain victory that way i just wasn't as interested in that as devil dinosaur and commandy but now that you mention it i want to look at that differently because i have some issues i have to go back and look at those again and it's interesting too because that whole post marvel period like Obviously, New Gods is kind of his definitive statement, right? It's the shackles have been taken off. I'm going to make four books and I'm going to write and edit them all. And there's going to be no censorship. And there's going to be just unbridled big ideas. You know, the idea that, that Darkseid and High Father have swapped sons, this idea of nature versus nurture, these ideas of deities and cosmic realities and the kind of good and balance of good and evil and the balance of their 
existence in the universe. Those are obviously very large, heady themes that he's really pouring his heart and soul into. And I think that that work is really good, but I'm way more interested in Jack Kirby's B-sides, almost. Devil Dinosaur, it literally started because they were trying to sell a TV show. They were trying to IP farm. They were trying to be Boom or any of these companies that greenlight books just to try and get shitty movie deals. And I really love the idea of taking something that's just inherently a flawed, wonky setup and turning it into something great. Like Commandy started because they were trying to come up with a way to dovetail off of the success of Planet of the Apes. Right. Which is so fascinating because that book has nothing to do with Planet of the Apes. Right. Like, wouldn't you think if there was a Planet of the Apes spinoff, there should have been ape people, Jack? (laughs) (laughs) Well, he had the Statue of Liberty there, so... Yeah, exactly. The Statue of Liberty there, and there's a boy that's almost naked, and some tiger people. Ah, (laughs) I guess. And like the editorial, I forget if it's in the first issue or the second issue, but there's an editorial from Jack in the back of one of those early Commandy issues where he's talking, almost trying to convince the reader that what they're reading is going to happen. The first issue with the weird like robot guy who has plastic skin. And he's talking about how he was reading Popular Mechanics or Science Today or some magazine like that. And he's talking about how he you know, read this article and it just unfurled this idea in his head about how in the future in nuclear power plants, we are going to have robot people that look like us but have lead-lined skin so they can go into these reactors and perform these duties that would kill a, a normal human. And that just kind of created a domino chain in his head, which is, again, so interesting But also, what does that have to do with anything with Planet of the Apes? It's so fascinating to see the organic unfurling of these ideas with people that are excited about what they're doing. You know, there's a lot of movies and comics that are produced today that are are very cynical in nature. They're kind of genetically engineered to try and mitigate risk, not tell exciting new or inventive stories. There are lots of movies today that are produced in order to mine irony, you know, movies like Velasa pastor and sharknado and any of these like low budget genre things because they're playing off of a cultural institution of people who enjoy bad movies and i think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what's happening there people don't like bad movies well some people like bad movies but i think the underlying thesis statement there of why so many of these kind of shitty movies from yesteryear have had a second life today is because There is something very interesting about examining ambition and sincerity when that is disconnected from ability. And there are so many of these kind of like shitty on purpose movies that aren't trying to say anything greater about the human condition. But fucking Samurai Cop, that movie was actually trying to be a real movie. It just sucks. And that's what's interesting because it's the kind of friction between those two ideas and that's what i love about so many jack kirby comics is that when he was drawing superpowers he could have phoned that in he could have been like superpowers i'm fucking jack kirby i created all of this shit and you're having me draw the toy comic but he he took it seriously he was really like i'm gonna try and deliver the best of my ability and try and make something great jimmy olsen's a perfect example dark side first appeared in jimmy olsen I love Jimmy Olsen. It's maybe my favorite ongoing Silver Age book. Mort Weisinger is somebody I'm obsessed with. Most people get obsessed with serial killers, weirdo historical figures. I get obsessed with like Silver Age editors and what (laughs) shitty people they were. And 
Mark Weisinger was a piece of shit. He was awful to his employees. He like literally made them dance for their paychecks. He was not a nice man, but he got so much interesting work out of people. It's fascinating to me. And the Jack Kirby in that environment is just so weird. Like you would think that wouldn't work, but it did. And so many of those comics are great. Well, that goes back to what I said about you is how you've taken the brakes off. You're not letting anything stop you. You're tapping into that kind of creativity where with Jack, you know, some of his books like Black Panther, I thought were just so weird and off the wall. But I guess that's one of the appealing things about it is that I wouldn't have done it that way. Maybe I wouldn't have thought of that. But he did. And it was like, a, yeah. like this great mashup that he does that no one thought of. Like, you put chocolate in my peanut butter. You put peanut butter in my chocolate. These are great. But you never would have thought of that. And that's why that stuff is so weird and wonky yet pretty cool. Yeah, like there's this story that Mark Evanier tells very frequently about Jack, Roz, Mark, and a couple of the kids. They were out to dinner one night at this restaurant called Dupar's here in California. Um, there's still a couple of them around, but most of them have kind of gone the way of the dodo. You guys have Coco's out in Nevada? Mm, I haven't seen them. Dupar's is like an, in air quotes, old people restaurant, you know, where it's like, mm -hmm. it's a kind of a diner. It's kind of the food's not great, but it's comfortable. Senior citizens like going there. And that's not an indictment. I like a lot of those places because nine times out of 10, they just let you sit there forever in a day and you just hang out and draw or have a fucking smoothie or whatever. And Mark Evanier, who is Jack's former assistant, tells this story where they were all out at dinner at Dupar's and Jack was eating pancakes and he like stopped mid meal and was just like, wait, hold on. Shush, 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 shush. So there's this guy and his name's Jason Blood and he gets cursed and he turns into a demon named Etrigan. Etrigan can only speak in riddles. And like, he just talks at them for 20 minutes about basically, you know, the demon. Mm -hmm. And the next day he pitches it to DC and it becomes the demon. But it's just so interesting to me that, and I'm kind of the same way, where he never unplugged. He was just always, yeah, and then it'd be like a weird Arthurian demon superhero. Is anyone asking for knight superheroes? I don't know, but I'm glad we got Etrigan because that shit fucking, it's dope. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Now, Warp Speed Ahead, different topic. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know what? God bless you, man. That's a great transition, and I'm sorry I'm making your life ten times harder. I'm just out here. Oh, it's fine. dancing. Not at all. <laughs> so, your first Star Trek comic was Waypoint, I believe. And yes. how did you get started writing Star Trek? You're a huge Star Trek fan. How did you get this dream job? Star Trek Waypoint was like an anthology where they had short stories written by different people. And Nicole, the co-author of Fuck Off Squad, she had done some work for IDW on their Gem and the Holograms book. And the same editor was editing both titles. They asked her what she wanted to do next. And she was like, Dave and I are both massive Star Trek fans. So we pitched, I think, five ideas for Waypoint. Thank goodness one of them actually got through. CBS selected a story that we pitched about Ezri Dax from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which is my favorite Star Trek show. It's like a 10-page story. Nicole illustrated it. Mikel Muerto colored it. Great colors. Mikel's an amazing colorist. But yeah, it was, it was published in Waypoint in, like, I don't even know what year that was. Is it 2019, 2018? 500 years ago? Yeah, it I, seems I like a know. long time ago now. Yeah. Like you said, dream gig. I love anything Kirby, anything Ditko, Star Trek, and the X-Men. Those are like the big corporately controlled big two things that I like. So to be able to play around in that Star Trek sandbox, even two seconds, was just 
unreal to me. Like I low key thought it was never going to happen. Even when Nicole had finished the pages and CBS had signed off and we'd been paid and we were, we got proofs from the printer to make sure, you know, there were no typos or anything. Like even after that, I was just like, this is never going to happen. It just won't happen. And uh, then it did. And I was like, hey, <laughs> we're officially Star Trek people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were quoted as saying, as a lifelong Star Trek fan, being able to play my small part in advancing the ideas of a better tomorrow means the world to me. This plays directly into why I wanted to write the book to begin with. To simply put it, the stories we tell one another matter and the stories we tell ourselves matter most of all. And I believe that was in reference to the book you're going to be working on or are working on, Star Trek Voyager 7's Reckoning. The stories we tell one another matter and the stories we tell ourselves matter most of all. Please explain. I thought that was very profound. Thank you. So I'll talk about that thematically a little bit and then talk about it, what it means for the actual book, because it really does literally and metaphorically play into uh, the Star Trek book that I'm doing. The book is illustrated by Angel Fernandez and, uh, or Hernandez? Fuck me. Hernandez. Yeah, I'm sorry. Mispronounced his name. It's been a long day. But yeah, I always make a point to try and say that, you know, these books are co-authored. They're made by me and the, the illustrator in equal parts. And, you know, there's a big problem currently in the way that comics are covered in both comics journalism and just general media where the writer is given credit for everything. It's a big problem. And I want to do my small part in trying to correct that. It's so frustrating. I'm sorry. I love Sean Phillips and Ed Brubaker, but Ed Brubaker doesn't make those comics. It's both of them together. Uh, even though they're always referred to as Ed Brubaker's criminal, Ed Brubaker's criminal. Ed's a great writer, but it's not what it is without Sean. And I feel the same way about Seven's Reckoning. Angel's work, he's finished the first issue and it's really, really nice stuff. I'm really excited about his storytelling and his likenesses and the way he's bringing the new aliens in the book to life, which I'm sure we'll get into. I'm really, really thankful that I got paired with somebody who really gets Star Trek. So back to your original question after 15 minutes of me filibustering. <laughs> oh, that's all right. <laughs> um, that statement, it's deceptively simple. And at the same time, even though it's probably wrapped in whatever specific brand of my preferred bravado and gravitas is imminently true, I think. The fact that people have a limitless potential inside of them and nine times out of ten don't allow themselves to activate it and don't allow themselves to pursue whatever their given hopes and dreams are is true. You know, I know people in my own life who are very talented in, in a wide variety of things, who are brilliant people who tell themselves that they're stupid, who are very, very wise, but who might not have a formal education in the way that our society deems as, in air quotes, being intelligent and anointed in that way, or who are very skilled and, and gifted in a specific asset, but they won't exercise it out of fear. And I think that's kind of what it all boils down to with both with this Star Trek book and just generally, you know, as you said, I don't like putting on the brakes, which you can tell after 30 seconds of meeting me. I think that that's part of that ethos, right? Is that if you tell yourself you can do something, you can do it, which sounds cheesy and schmaltzy and kind of, hi, I'm Tony Robbins-y. But I really think that human willpower is the greatest asset. And I think that the more that idea is spread, the easier it is and the more accessible it is, the more humans 
can activate it. And look, I know how things work. I know that Star Trek comics are not exactly the peak of the mountain in terms of what our culture deems as high art, but they mean a lot to me. Like I said, I read a lot of different stuff. I like the works of Mark Z. Danielewski, and I like the works of Harlan Ellison, and I like the works of Peter David's Star Trek comics. I really think that sometimes the best way to absorb some of these tonics for the existential howl that most of us grapple with is through genre fiction. And that's kind of one of the just literal and existential ideas that the book is grappling with. So the book is called Star Trek Voyager, Seven's Reckoning. It's the first Star Trek Voyager miniseries in like about a decade. I mean, the fact that they're making a Star Trek original continuity book, I'm over the moon about. Like, I've been wanting this for a long time as a fan. And the fact that I'm the one that's writing it is so weird. (laughs) It's really, really strange to me, even still. Like, I'm kind of in that same mode. Like, talk to me again when, when all four issues are done. But right now, I'm like, this is never going to happen. They're never going to put this book out. No one's going to let me get away with writing a Star <laughs> Trek comic. So the book is about this period in Seven of Nine's life where she's been taken in by the crew of Voyager. Basically, in season four of Voyager, a new character is introduced onto the ship, partly to try and bounce ratings because the show is lagging a little bit, and partly because there was a chemistry problem in the crew, and you could tell that they just needed some new injection into the way the characters bounced off of each other. So they introduce a Borg drone who gets brought onto the Enterprise and is, in one reading of it, gifted back their humanity, and in one reading of it, stripped of their Borg culture. Depends on which way you want to look at that. I'm Captain Janeway. This is Lieutenant Tuvok. We are aware of your designations. What's your designation? Seven of nine, tertiary adjunct of Unimatrix zero one. But you may call me Seven of Nine. The show itself then starts to grapple with how does someone who is human but has basically had this aspect of them stripped from a very young age, how do they grow and attempt to become human of their own volition? How do they evolve interpersonally while still keeping parts of their Borg anatomy, literally, and their Bork culture, whatever that may be. This miniseries takes place in the fourth season of the show when Seven of Nine is introduced. It takes place in between two well-known episodes, Scientific Method and Year of Hell, Part One. And it follows Seven of Nine as she is given an away mission on a deep space ship. The Enterprise is, or not Enterprise, Jesus, the Voyager. (laughs) The Voyager is making its way from... The area of space gets lost in as it's coming back to Earth, and they find this big hulking ship that's like an intergenerational warp ship that's obviously meant for some sort of colonization with an unknown alien race on it. They go to this ship. They find out, oh, you guys are from this society that is basically extinct, and you're trying to make your way to a new horizon. We're doing something very similar. We're trying to get back home. And they... Make a deal. We will give you the help of our scientific crew, and they will help you fix your warp drive. You give us some supplies, blah, 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 blah. And then from there, Seven starts learning about this culture, and she befriends a member on this alien ship, uh, which is a new alien race that Angel and I co-created, which I'm very excited about. And this alien race has two kind of social classes, an upper class and a lower. And the lower class, they're these kind of like 
big hulking almost kind of like lizard looking four-armed indentured servants they're all thought to be working class they're all thought to be kind of construction workers as an entire species almost and then the upper class on the ship are four-armed almost kind of serpentine-esque aliens who are thought to be kind of the more intellectual the ruling class the spiritual leaders and these two races have been living a very uh parasitic relationship off of each other for years the reason why that statement that's in the press release that i made about the story that we tell ourselves matter is that the main way that the upper class keeps the lower class as indentured servants is that they literally tell them a story they have these big pictograms these big kind of like egyptian almost carvings all over their ship that tell these fables about their home world that they've been traveling from for millennia that are basically kind of Aesop's fables about the various people on their homeworld and the, the struggles they went through. And one warrior specifically who kind of acted as a Spartacus and overthrew an unjust society and set up the way that things are now. And that warrior had two arms. And that's how they keep this lower four-armed class in subjugation is by repeatedly telling them this story. And a lot of these lower class aliens have absorbed this story. They fully believe this to be the truth. And I guess you'll have to read the book to find out if it is the truth. But logically speaking, everyone listening to this has probably absorbed a story at one point in time. And uh, story conventions dictate that there's usually some sort of arc. So if everybody starts out as slaves, indentured servitude by means of a story they might realize that maybe those stories aren't so true. Wow. <laughs> I'm more interested now than I was before we got together to talk about this. Thanks for being interested. That's uh, that, that makes me feel good. makes me feel like I've maybe uh, done some good work. You've done well. Because I'm not a gigantic Star Trek fan, but I've really started to get into it the past year or so. And, you know, as a kid, I saw it on TV. And uh, it scared the bejesus out of me because of the puppet guy at the very end of the credits. Just totally freaked me out. <laughs> but I've seen some of them, and I've been watching them now in sequence on television, and my wife and I are both fans of The Next Generation. She's watched them all, I think, so we're now starting at the beginning and going all the way through to watch them together, you know, something we both oh, agree cool. on. For this, even though I didn't get as far as Seven's episodes, I watched the first two episodes of Voyager, and I was like, that's pretty damn good. So yeah. um, <laughs> I'm juggling all these now, and I'm really enjoying it, so when I saw this being solicited... I'm like, well, I've been buying a lot of Star Trek comics lately. I mean, that's a, a large part of what I buy right now, oddly enough, because I was a big superhero guy and stuff like that. And then I bought more indie comics. Now I'm going this direction. So I'm really looking forward to it. And it sounds like a great character study. And from your passion in writing and all your work that you're doing, looking forward to see what you come up with. Thank you. There's a lot of peacocking on the internet within comics where there's people who are just like, I can't believe I got to write this issue of fucking Domino or whatever. I'm not actually shitting on whoever was writing Domino. I don't even know. I'm just saying, like, I really doubt Domino changed anyone's life. Maybe they did, but there's like this performative aspect to working in the direct market. It is what it is. I understand why people do it, but it's just really dumb. Not everything changed your life all the time. Like, like I don't know that writing uh, some B-list Star Trek character that was in the back of one scene really changed my life. But Star Trek as a whole really did. I really, really love the fact that it is 
so staunchly dedicated towards ideas like inclusivity and diversity and the essence of what makes us sentient. I don't think Star Trek's perfect either. I think there's some really weird, dangerous, colonialist overtones to so much of Star Trek. And I don't know that Star Trek itself has ever grappled with that. The fact that humanity is right 99 times out of 100, I think that's really wrong. I think if we're going out into space and we're trying to learn from other people, I don't really know that us enforcing our moral compass on another culture, which obviously is literally what the Prime Directive is stated against, Mm -hmm. but it's never really handled that way. There's never been an entire series of Star Trek about how do we deconstruct what in essence is a metaphor for white supremacy and how do we make it better? And I think that that's a very interesting question. Do I think we're actually going to get a Star Trek show about that? No, probably not. But that doesn't change the fact that Star Trek is still so progressive and does it fall to the trappings of its time and does it kind of have wonky elements here and there depending on who the specific steward of the franchise is at at any given time yeah of course what franchise doesn't but the fact that michelle nichols was the first black person on tv that everybody was just like what the fuck this is amazing the fact that the first interracial kiss Mm -hmm. the fact that all of star trek even when it's not necessarily meeting its full potential is aspiring to show that the future will be better, where so much of our culture is suggesting the opposite. I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing. I think sometimes it's easy. I think it communicates well. And I think it's something that is understandable, both why someone would want to tell that story and be pessimistic. And sure, I have days where I'm pessimistic, of course. But I think Star Trek's primal optimism is what makes me so, so, so thankful and proud to be just a tiny drop of (laughs) of something in that giant tapestry of stories. Those topics about colonialism and white supremacy that are kind of seeping in there, you could always write stories about that. You could be the guy. Yeah, fingers crossed CBS is excited about that. I would love that idea. I would love to do that. And in some ways, Seventh Reckoning, it isn't explicitly about that, but those ideas are there. These ideas of that if you tell yourself you're the villain you might eventually become the villain. If you tell yourself repeatedly that you can be better, you probably will be better. And, you know, there's an interesting dichotomy between the reach and the grasp of so many genre pieces. I'm not saying that I've solved it. I'm not saying that Seven's Reckoning is the greatest comic ever made. It's probably not. It's probably not even in the top 100. But God damn it, I'm trying. Like, I gave the first draft of a couple of the issues to one of my screenwriter buddies and uh, was just like, is this trying too much to do something that I won't spoil here? And he was just like, you know, I can't say that I can think of a licensed comic for a TV show that's even trying half as hard. And I guess that's the biggest compliment, right? Because, yeah, I'm trying. Whether I succeed or fail, I guess that'll be in the in the eyes of the beholder. But I'm swinging for the fences. We'll find out in November. It's not that far off now. But now it's time for the fun questions to ask all my guests. But I'm going to call an audible here. I'm going to change it up a little bit. Some will be fun questions you've heard before. And some will be just different things that we should talk about. Cool. What is your personal story about Star Trek? We all have one. Like I shared some of my memories as a kid. I was terrified. What was your personal memory of Star Trek? 
You mean like when I first encountered it? It doesn't have to be the first encounter, just something about it that really connected with you. It could have been much later after you started watching it. Well, one of the things that always kind of stuck with me, Star Trek is such a large organism. When I was younger, it wasn't like Star Wars. There are these things and they're numbered and you just watch them in that order and that's what there is. There's just those things, whether it's the original trilogy or whether it's the first six or whatever. Yeah, there's video games and comics and novels and stuff. The core is those things where Star Trek now it has 13 movies and 14 movies, whatever it is, and seven TV shows and the animated show and all these things that were kind of circulating through the kind of like ecosystem of whatever I was exposed to as a younger person in the pre-internet era. And I had a VHS tape of Star Trek VI that my grandmother had taped because she thought it was Star Wars. She was like, <laughs> they were playing Star Wars on the, on the TV, so I, I taped this for you. And I was so excited because it said Star Wars on it. And I put it in and it was Star Wars 6, which in context, Star Wars 6 is one of the better of six movies with the original cast. Mm-hmm. Out of context, I don't know that that movie is that fun for like a 12-year-old. You know what I mean? Like if you don't know who anyone is, you don't really understand what's going on. It's just like a lot of people in rooms talking. But the thing that really just completely transfixed me is in the bookending segments where Kirk is on trial or whatever, whatever it is, where there's the room of all those giant aliens in the white bleachers. There's one guy that as a kid, I thought was a werewolf. As an adult, I've since found out that he's one of the like cat people from the animated series that Emrys was a member of. And he's in like two shots. He's in one shot in the beginning where he kind of is like sitting down next to another alien. And he kind of leans over and goes like, oh, crazy or whatever. And he's just got like murmur lines to another guy. And then one line at the end where there's a bunch of aliens like standing around and he's kind of like in the foreground. And I would just pause that frame and just look at that guy because that guy's suit was so cool. I love monsters and I love anytime there's some sort of otherworldly freaky thing. I'm just like, oh, yeah, weird hairy monster. Hell yeah, this is dope. Ooh, weird scary monster. This is cool, too. Probably because I felt that way as a little kid, right? Every person feels like an outsider and ostracized in some way. And if you don't, congratulations. You're the one. That fucking werewolf dude, whatever he was, I was just obsessed with him as a kid. And I would draw him in my sketchbook. I didn't have a photo of him or anything. So I would, like, try and remember what he looked like. And in my head, he was a werewolf with one of those pilgrim collars, you know, those like weird frilly white collars. Obviously, he's just wearing a Starfleet uniform from that era where they have the little white collars. But I would draw him with like, it was like three feet long. (laughs) (laughs) I was just obsessed with that guy. So I guess that's my Star Trek story. That's the first thing that popped in my head was that werewolf guy that nobody ever remembered except for me. And I would draw all the time. Well, with your diverse tastes, I'm curious to know, what pictures and or posters did you have on the bedroom wall when you were growing up? So there's two answers to this. Do you want the things that other people made that were on my wall or the things that I made? Because I painted a big mural of Biggie, uh, Notorious B.I.G. I painted Christopher Wallace, a giant, oh, wow. like almost life-size, probably when I was like 14, 15, somewhere in there. I painted a giant Biggie portrait over my bed. And yeah, he was like life-size. I was and still am really into that dude, RIP. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I painted that big portrait. And then the other stuff I had, what else I had? I had a planetary retailer poster because I worked at a comic book store 
And they just got a bunch of these promotional posters from when Planetary was, it was either the middle relaunch where they were coming back after like a year of being away, you know, after issue 12 or whatever it was. It was like red, a bifurcated, like shattered grid almost. There's a bunch of little inserts of the various pulp referential characters in there. I feel like maybe Elijah Snow is either running at the viewer or standing with his cane or something. I don't remember specifically, but it was pretty front and center. I liked that character a lot. And I, I really liked John Cassidy's work from that time period. A brilliant, brilliant illustrator. I feel like I had a... <laughs> I had a giant portrait of Leonard Nimoy <laughs> because, of course, I did. I don't know how I got it because it wasn't branded from one of the movies. It was just like a 36 by 24 movie poster sized image of Leonard Nimoy's big ass head. <laughs> it was great. I don't know where I got it from, but it must have been some convention or something. And yeah, that was on the back of my door. So you would close the door and Leonard Nimoy's just stern glower would stare back at you. You said you worked at a comic book store. Yeah. Did you learn anything there? Was there a takeaway from that time you worked there? So I worked at two different comic book stores. I worked at one comic book store all through high school, Heroes and Villains in Tucson, Arizona, where I'm from. And then another one after I graduated college for like a year before I moved out to California, Fantasy Comics. And I think the lessons that I learned there, I mean, honestly, there are many, one of which being somewhat similar to the conversation that we were having earlier, which is just being excited about stuff makes other people excited about stuff. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's very easy to give in to sloth and negativity and apathy. But if you make the extra effort and try and, in my case, nine times out of 10, spew positivity, it really does come back to you. And that was something that at the comic book store I, I learned in spades when I would come in and I would have a bad day. I wasn't mentally giving and I was just kind of maybe living the cliche of the person working in a comic book store being like, hey, what's up? What do you want? All right, fuck <laughs> it. Let me get your poll. Yeah. The day was worse and the people were worse. And the days that I hopefully that were more on average, the days that I was giving and excited and, and very gregarious, that would come back to me in spades. And especially... When I worked at the store in high school, for some reason, there were a lot of little kids that came into the store during that time period. And the store itself had a very big reader base of parents and kids. I don't know why, but it was just a thing with that store. There were a lot of kids there. And some of those kids I still know today. And it's so weird because the comic community is so closely knit that it's just a really good lesson of treat everybody how you would like to be treated. Be excited about stuff and good shit can happen. I mean, literally one of the people I know, I literally have known them since they were probably 12, 11 years old from the comic book store is now working at IDW and we've worked on projects together. And it's so cool that we've both kind of come up through the ranks knowing each other. They, we get to work on stuff together. It's so, you know, not to be cheesy, but it's like, a, it's like shit from a movie. It's like, ah, someday I'm going to make it in the big leagues, pa. <laughs> and then you know he's now the editor on transformers and you know i'm out here drawing covers and stuff it's really really exciting the takeaways from both comic book stores a reinforcement of that golden rule of like if you're just nice to people good stuff happens and also that variant covers suck and speculators are evil and fuck all that shit <laughs> <laughs> one of my classic questions i like to ask people is what is your favorite beverage when you're relaxing yeah, I was thinking about this one because I don't really, 
consume alcoholic beverages, which I feel like is something of a implied question inside of that question. It's really just kind of like, do you like soda pop? And I don't even really drink soda. I live a very kind of laser focused life. So I really kind of just drink water. And the <laughs> Nicole's been giving me a loving amounts of shit recently about the fact that I have now branched out into drinking juice. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> this Corona bullshit is just so terrifying. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta get some more vitamins. I guess I'll drink apple juice. <laughs> So uh, I guess that's my answer that I've tried to drink more apple juice lately. But the real answer is I just drink water. It's not even that complex. I'll amend my answer. My favorite thing to drink is a very specific patina of water. It's that when you wake up in the middle of the night and it's super hot and you're like almost disoriented because you're kind of dehydrated from sleeping and you're like, oh, God, wow, God, I need some water. And you stumble into the kitchen and you drink water. Nine times out of ten, right out of the canister, just because you're just so like, I gotta have it now. That specific feeling of like, I might die if I don't get some water, and then drinking some water, that's my answer. (laughs) (laughs) It's like water in the desert. It's great. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. It's it's the emotional equivalent of water in the desert, which I guess is not even the emotional equivalent because I literally live in the desert in California. I hear you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, of course you do. Yeah, you live in Vegas, so it's, it's the same thing. Drinking water now. Yes. My final question is nothing profound. Uh, It's just something I was thinking about today. You know, you mentioned coronavirus. We're in the middle of all this, and it's going to be going on for a while. I've been having weird dreams. It might just be anxiety. And I always have these stupid dreams. It's like, oh, there's that class that you forgot about. You haven't been Mm -hmm. attending class. No one's noticed that you haven't been there, but you have to take the final now. And if you fail, am I going to graduate? Am I going to have to Mm -hmm. repeat? I'm slipping by. And no one notices it. No one's like, why isn't he here? But then... I don't know what's going on. I haven't read anything. And I keep having that, which is really weird. Or the one where you forget your locker combination. It's around here somewhere. Now, I've had dreams where I have prepared and I did find that locker combination. So that was good. But every once in a while, (laughs) I relapse. You have a panic dream and then you are prepared in the panic dream? Actually, what happens is rather than being prepared, I'm like, wait a minute. I have this realization. Like I come back to reality. I've already graduated. What do I care? You know, oh, like I kind of, yeah. you know, what I, mean? like I, I kind of come out of it. Like I don't panic anymore. I'm like, wait a minute, my stage in life. I don't care. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, totally. And then sometimes I do remember that locker combination, but do you have any, like those weird recurring things with all the stress, the weirdness of the country and coronavirus and everything? Yes. 100%. I absolutely do. My version of that though is so much lamer than yours. <laughs> My I version, thought mine was pretty lame. <laughs> no, no, yours makes sense. Yours is completely understandable, communicable, simple, precise, to the point. Everyone's had exactly that experience. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Mine is, I start dreaming scenes in the thing that I'm working on, almost like I'm walking through a movie. Like right now, I'm working on a book that's kind of like a Nancy Drew-inspired Hardy Boys-esque like adventure thing. It's an adventure comic. I'm drawing it right now. And I've been drawing it for what feels like a hundred years, but at this point, who knows how long it is. And I'll be like dreaming, like I'm inside the scenes in the book. And then it'll start going into places that I didn't draw. There'll be new stuff at the ends of the scenes where it should jump to the next scene. And the new stuff is always better than the thing that I've drawn. And I'm always like, fuck, why isn't this in the book? And I'm like in the dream, looking at the stuff that's 10 times cooler than what I've made. And I'm like, this is so much better. No. 
and I like wake up in cold sweats, literally going like, ah, no, why, why? Oh, wait, what? Oh, it's fine. Sometimes I'll like write down those ideas Mm -hmm. to use in other things later or something. But that's my version of the panic dream of you didn't get your best onto the page. You're always thinking and working and, you know, you're never at rest. Even when you're at rest, you're not at rest. You're still going at it inside your head. I'm a very specific type of person. You either really like it or you really don't. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, you know, I thank my lucky stars. I know people like Nicole and like Malachi Ward who made Ancestor for Image and these friends and collaborators that I've had over the years who put up with me because I'm somebody that if you like it, it's really charming. And if you don't, it's like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> like you just said, I really, uh, I have a difficult time sometimes kind of scaling back. And as a perfect synecdoche, I loathe vacations. Vacations are the enemy to me. <laughs> I really hate them. I would much rather be in my house tinkering away on whatever the thing is. But I suppose that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I understand. Well, I had a lot of stuff I wanted to talk about, a lot of questions, but we'll have to do this again. That's all there is to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Give me one more of the ones you wanted to ask, but you didn't at all. I won't go on my normal <laughs> pedestal. <laughs> okay. Tell me about a book that changed the way you think. Oh, man, that's a great question. There have been so many. I think the one recently, like within the last five to ten years, I would have to point to the novel The House of Leaves, written by Mark Z. Danielewski. If you're not familiar, it's a prose novel that has three narrative streams inside of it. It is a thesis paper analyzing a documentary that's chronicling the events that this family went through when they moved into a house in North Carolina that was a quarter of an inch bigger on the inside than on the outside. And so you (laughs) – yeah, it's great. It's great. So you you read this book, which is an analysis of the documentary – called the Navidson Report. The thesis paper is written by this guy named Zampano, who's this elderly Hispanic man who is blind. And so he like dictated this thesis statement to someone. You don't know who, but he dictated it. And it's an analysis of this documentary called the Navidson Report, which is a supposed real footage documentary of the spelunking efforts that this man and his family created when they were attempting to explore their house because over the course of them living in this house they discover that the inside keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and at one point the main character decides that he's going to go into a closet and so he and a couple of his friends get together spelunking gear and cameras and supplies and they literally spend months in this closet made of obsidian rock it's like this hallway that just goes on to infinity and people get lost in the house and people maybe die in the house you don't know so over the course of reading it it unfolds both as a chronicle of these narratives and as a document of someone going insane so it's this weird like found footage book novel doctoral thesis And there are all these interesting kind of like footnotes. The narrative will just stop at certain points and other people will come in and explain like we've lost a bunch of these pages and we don't know where they've gone. And we think this is what happened here, but we're not sure. And we can't find the Navidson report, so we can't really fill in the gaps. But this is just what we think happened. Like editors will come in 
And then at a certain point, there's a whole other narrative stream about this guy who's a tattoo artist in California in the 90s who's obsessed with Zampano's book, House of Leaves, which you're reading, which is a chronicle of this documentary, which is about these people lost in this house. And it's this just this narrative tunnel. And I personally just love weird, immersive worlds. And I love when people spend so much time with an idea that it almost doesn't make sense to anyone. Like, I feel like I'm a I'm pretty adept at pitching ideas and being able to say, well, it's this, meet that, or boiling something down into a bite-sized, digestible piece of information that I can tell to someone, and then they can gauge whether they're interested in consuming the thing I've made. But the thing I really love is when an idea is so mangled and twisted and malformed over the process of making it that you can't do that with it. And House of Leaves is a perfect example of a book that everything I just said is 100% true, but it doesn't tell you anything about the actual process of reading it. You could read that book a hundred times and it wouldn't ever be boring and you wouldn't ever have mined everything out of it. It's so richly dense and like a crystal cathedral to one man's obsessive dedication to getting the idea right. And it took Mark Z. Danielewski like a decade to write it. And you can tell it really feels that way. I swear I've heard that name before. Yeah, he's written a couple books. He wrote one that's an epic poem that you can read both backwards and forwards. His most recent thing is he wrote a children's book that's like about a little boy floating a balloon. But of course, it's Mark Z. Danielewski. So it's like compartmentalized. So you can read it three different ways. He wrote another series, too, which I'm now blanking on. It's about like a taxi cab driver. I haven't read that one. If that sounded interesting, I would highly, highly recommend it. It's a very, very exciting piece of work to me, personally. Dave Baker, writing Star Trek Voyager, Seven's Reckoning, one through four. First one comes out in November. Thank you very much for having me on the show to talk about the book. Uh, I would also like to say that the week or two weeks after Star Trek comes out, uh, I have a creator-owned book with Alexis Zirit called Night Hunters, which comes out from Floating World, November 25th, which is about two brothers that live in Venezuela 100 years in the future. And the only way that you can kind of survive in the future in Venezuela is either become a police officer or a homeless person. And those are really your options. So if that sounds like something you're into, or if Alexis Zirit's work from Space Writers or a bunch of other cool stuff like Tarantula that he's made in the indie comic space, something you'd like i feel like those might be up your alley thanks for letting us know and thank you for being on creator talks yeah thank you very much coming up next on creator talks is my halloween special that will be out october 29th the thursday before halloween which this year is on a saturday what else is so significant about this halloween coming up well i discussed that with my guest in just one week Not only do we discuss Halloween in the costumes we used to wear as kids, but we also talk about horror movies and about a horror TV show host. And no, it's not Sven Gulli. We're going back a ways. And we'll also talk about my guests, Marvel and DC comic book work from the 80s and 90s. Who is it, you ask? Well, just follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod to find out who... And if you wish to contact me directly, the best way is by email. The address is very simple. It's creatortalks at gmail.com. That's creatortalks at gmail.com. The show is available on your favorite podcast catcher if this is the first time you're hearing it. 
and it is available also on YouTube and now on Amazon. If you have not yet, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to helping to grow the audience. And hey, if there's someone else that you're listening to, their podcast, do them a solid. Leave them a rating review too. They would really appreciate it. I know I would. Regardless, I want to thank you for spending the time with me listening to this interview. I hope you really enjoyed it. I know I had a blast speaking with Dave. I'm sure he's going to be back on the show. We had such a good time. And while you're here, go ahead and look at the rest of the catalog of interviews that I have. Just Google Creator Talks Podcast. That's Creator Talks Podcast. And boom, they'll pop up. A lot of great guests out there I've spoken to. Give them all a listen, won't you? And speaking of guests, after my Halloween episode, in November I'll have an interview with a guest whose native language is not English, and I cannot fluently speak their language. So, with the help of an interpreter, I conduct my first foreign language interview. It's a bit shorter than most of my interviews because with the language barrier, it's a little difficult to dig in further with questions when you have an interpreter, but it is a great story of a personal journey. More specifics about the interview in the weeks to come. For Creator Talks, this has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.